Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Colby Taylor, um, a psychologist and also an assistant professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee. So I'm actually coming at you from my home office today and not the Christian Brothers uh, podcasting studio. So I apologize if the sound quality isn't awesome. Um, anyways, uh, some stuff has happened since the last episode. I think that in the last season of this podcast, I talked about a painful experience I had um, where I was uh, running, I was training for a marathon, and I swallowed a wasp. And I think it was about this time last year. Um, anyways, I decided um, last Friday to take a mental health day. Um, I was like, I'm going to take a mental health day, I'm going to cancel my classes, and I'm going to go fishing because the weather was beautiful and fishing is sort of my way to decompress. Um, so anyways, uh, I uh, was super pumped to go fishing. I drove um, to the middle of nowhere. It was about an hour outside of Memphis um, and actually went fishing with my dad. And uh, so we got out there in the morning and it was a beautiful morning and I immediately catch two fish in like the first five minutes. Um, and as the second fish is getting off of the hook, um, it, it throws the fish hook out of its mouth and uh, lands in my finger. Um, and, you know, fish hooks have barbs in them. Uh, and usually I'm able to get, like disengage the barb and get the fishing hook out. Um, but this one was on my right pointer finger and it was right up against the bone. And, you know, I would try to yank on the barb and it would, it would not come loose. Um, so five minutes into my fishing journey, uh, I had to go to the minor med in uh, Lauderdale County, Tennessee, which again is sort of in the middle of nowhere. Went to the minor med. Um, some of the nurses wanted to take pictures of my finger. They're like, Hey, you're the, you're the guy with the fishing hook in your hand. Uh, can we take pictures with you? And I'm like, sure. Um, anyways, they, at the minor med, they tried to yank on the fishing hook and get it out. And it was just, uh, the barb was just tugging on the skin and it was painful and it was not really working. And they, they tried to tug at it for about an hour. They didn't have any lidocaine or anything. And they said, Hey, you know, this isn't happening. Um, we're going to send you, you need to go to the ER. Um, uh, so I had to go to the Lauderdale County Hospital to the ER, um, and they did have lidocaine uh, to sort of numb my finger up. Luckily, they put me in like a separate room. I didn't have to wait with anybody with the COVID outbreak or anything like that. Um, but uh, I asked how much it would hurt to get this lidocaine shot against my bone and for them to, you know, yank this fishing hook out. And uh, the, the doctor said it was going to be an 11 out of 10 on the pain scale. Like, Holy smokes. 11 out of 10. So I started to get a little bit nervous. They brought these two guys in, these two big guys in to like hold my hands down, hold my arms down um, while she gave the shot and while she yanked the, the fishing hook out. And luckily it was only like a one out of 10 on the pain scale. Um, but by this time it was like six hours into my uh, uh, day off, um, my mental health day. So I don't know what the moral of the story is. The fishing hook came out. I didn't have to get any stitches or anything. Barely bled. Um whether it's to not take mental health days or, or don't go fishing or do anything dangerous on mental health days or what. Uh, but anyways, that's what's been going on in my world. Um, and speaking of mental health days, uh, I've been following a lot of news stories around the country on whether um, school districts um, should start offering built-in mental health days for students. Um, you know, you're expected to be absent if you have a physical ailment, right? You're sick with COVID or a sore throat or something like that. But why not build in mental health days? And so I've been following these news stories around the countries, uh, around the country of certain school districts that are offering, you know, 
three mental health days a semester or something like that. Um, and I'm curious what listeners think, how many mental health days you should maybe have a semester? Um, is three too many? Is three too few? Um, should there be certain ground rules on this where you can't take mental health days during exams? Um, when it seems like you would probably be at your highest uh, mental stress levels. Um, and then also whether this is actually a good thing. Uh, I know oftentimes, at least from my own personal experience, when I take mental health days, um, I'm even more anxious when I come back. I'm buried in emails. Um, you know, for school children, they have more makeup work to do. Um, could it actually be causing more harm than good, these mental health days, right? Um, you come back and you're just swamped with makeup work and it makes it even more difficult uh, to come back. Is it sort of an uh, escape avoidance strategy for anxiety? So interested to see what you have to say about mental health days. Um, you can email me at ctaylo 41 at cv.edu and let me know your opinions. Okay, let's focus on today's topic. Um, so the topic of today's episode is homicidal ideation. And this actually came about through a mailbag request. And that same email that I just gave out to you, ctaylo41 at cv.edu, um, you can make episode requests or ask me questions, and I'll try to make them into a reality. Um, so the mailbag request was, my question is, could murder slash homicide be considered its own mental illness or psychopathology? So not mental illness being a cause of becoming a murderer, like schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder, but the want to kill being its own disorder. And that's the question. And I think this is a really thought-provoking question. So right now in the DSM, we don't have a separate diagnosis of murder. Um, but I think you could argue maybe we should have a diagnosis of murder or homicidal ideation, right? We'd have like a diagnostic code of 666 for murder. Um, and we could even have like specifiers for single-time homicide or if you're a serial killer for serial homicide. Or we could have like a specifier for you only have thoughts about homicide, but you don't act on them, like homicidal ideation. Or a specifier for you've actually, you know, attempted to commit homicide. You've acted upon your thoughts. And I think you could make a compelling argument for creating sort of a diagnosis for homicidal ideation or for, for murder or something like that. Um, but I say this is a really thought-provoking question because it gets at a few things. Um, there's some underlying issues at play. Um, so one of the topics this gets at is homicidal ideation. So I'm going to talk about the definition of homicidal ideation and its prevalence and some of the theories behind it. Um, another is the prevalence of homicidal ideation with serious mental illness. So how often does somebody with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or another serious mental illness experience homicidal ideation? Um, Another sort of philosophical argument that this gets at is whether something is a symptom of a condition versus a disorder within itself. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit, how it relates to murder and homicidal ideation. Um, and then the final thing I want to touch on with this topic of murder and homicide is whether creating a psychological diagnosis for something like murder creates sort of a diagnostic excuse or bailout for somebody that commits the, the something like murder or pedophilia or something like that. And so we'll close the episode by talking about that. All right, first up, let's talk about homicidal ideation and define that. So homicidal ideation is sort of a fancy term for thinking about killing somebody. Um, sometimes this thinking about killing somebody can be sort of a pervasive thought. Um, this can be something that's intrusive uh, that you can't get rid of. Um, 
And that starts to become really problematic if, um, you know, you're just sort of one track mind on killing somebody. Uh, but the simple definition of homicidal ideation is just thinking about killing somebody. Um, and these thoughts might not even be abnormal. There was a doctoral dissertation by Joshua Duntley back in 2005 that found as many as 90% of undergrads admit to experiencing homicidal ideation. So perhaps most people or almost everybody has thought about killing somebody at some point. Now, how serious are these thoughts about killing somebody? Um, I think is a, is a legitimate question. You know, are you just frustrated and you've sort of thought about killing somebody before as a passing thought or whether you are like actually really close to killing somebody, you know, which would be more problematic or serious. I don't think a lot of the methodology has really gotten into that. Um, but there are theories that homicidal ideation is, you know, sort of normal. Um, again, if 90% of people have thought about killing somebody before, it seems to be pretty normal and might even be evolutionarily adaptive in some way. So we might even be wired as humans uh, to think about homicide. Thinking about homicide might be part of being human. Um, and there's some evolutionary theories for that. Uh, there's homicide adaption theory, which conveniently or cleverly acronyms to HAT. So with homicide adaption theory, thinking about murder or even committing murder um, might be evolutionarily advantageous. So one of the theories with homicide adaption theory uh, involves um, gender or sex, right? So men commit over 85% of murders in the United States. So that's an overwhelming majority in committing over 85% of murders in the United States. Um, and one of the uh, hypotheses behind this is that reproductively, men can produce more offspring than women. So women tend to be choosier in um, their sexual partners or choosing a mate than men. So it might be that men commit homicide on other men to eliminate competition and to free up mates. Um, this might also be explained through hostile masculinity, right? Maybe there's something that's different about the way men are wired. Um, or maybe society grooms men to be aggressive. Um, as far as men being wired, maybe more for aggression, uh, we do know that um, certain men, like those with XXY or XYY chromosomes, do tend to be more genetically primed for murder. Uh, but the research that I've seen on who's um, actually in death row uh, convicted of murder um, shows that it's only a very small percentage, like less than 10% of, of murderers that are in prison um, have XXY or XYY chromosomes. So obviously that's not a complete explanation um, for uh, why men commit over 85% of murders in the United States. Um, so another thing that this question gets at, whether, whether homicidal ideation or murder should be a diagnosis uh, on its own, a standalone diagnosis, is whether something is a symptom or a disorder in itself. Uh, and this gets really philosophical when we start talking about nosology, which is the classification of diseases, and etiology, which is um, uh, sort of the, the study of the cause of diseases. And I mentioned in a previous podcast that I'm reading Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps a Score. And I'm going to do a special episode on that um, in a couple of weeks. Um, I'll review the book and talk about things I liked and didn't like. Um, but there's a quote from the book. Uh, that I really like. And it's before the late 19th century, doctors classified illnesses according to their surface manifestations, like fevers and pustules, which was not unreasonable given that they had little else to go on. 
This changed when scientists like Louis Pasteur and Robert Cook discovered that many diseases were caused by bacteria and were invisible to the naked eye. Medicine then was transformed by its attempts to discover ways to get rid of those organisms rather than just treating the boils and the fevers that they caused. With DSM-5, psychiatry firmly regressed to the early 19th century medical practice. Despite the fact that we know the origin of many problems it identifies, its diagnoses, and diagnoses is in quotation marks there, um, describe surface phenomena that completely ignore the underlying causes, end quote. So with murder or homicidal ideation, is this a pustule or a boil, which would be sort of a symptom of an underlying uh, infection or uh, more comprehensive um, diagnosis? Or is it a diagnosis in itself? Is murder a boil or is it bacteria? There is some compelling research that shows that a lot of people that commit murder um, have psychiatric or psychological diagnoses. So a study by T. Honan and colleagues out of Finland in 1997 found people with depressive disorders are the least likely to commit murder, whereas people with alcohol-related psychoses and schizophrenia are the most likely. So this might beg the question, what are most people in prison diagnosed with? Um, Young and colleagues in 2015 found that 25% of people in prison are diagnosed with ADHD. So that seems ADHD seems to be the most common diagnosis. Uh, but there is sort of some lack of consensus in research. So Faisal and colleagues in 2016 found that in a male prison population, uh, 3.6% of the prison population was diagnosed with psychotic illness, which would be SMI, serious mental illness. 10.2% uh, was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, which sort of contradicts the Finland study uh, that I just mentioned, uh, where people with... Um, depression or major depressive disorder were the least likely to commit murder. Um, 18 to 30 percent of the prison male prison population was diagnosed with an alcohol use disorder and 10 to 48 percent, which is a huge range, uh, was diagnosed with drug use disorder. Um, we do know from the first episode of this podcast that most people with mental health diagnoses are not any more violent than the general population and in fact are more likely to be victims than perpetrators of crime. But there might be a modestly higher risk for certain disorders, like schizophrenia. Um, but we know that most murderers are not diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, you've probably listened to enough true crime podcasts to anecdotally verify that most serial killers and most people that commit murder are not diagnosed with schizophrenia um, or another serious mental health um, diagnosis. Uh, we also know that some murderers have antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy, but of course not all of them do, and probably not even most of them do. Um, there are murderers that feel remorse after they commit murder. Um, some people that commit homicide aren't callous and unemotional. They don't meet diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Um, research by Carbone and colleagues in 2020, and it's a relatively new study, shows that antisocial personality disorder increases homicidal ideation by almost 2,500%. Um, borderline personality disorder increases homicidal ideation by about 1,500%, and schizophrenia increases it by about 1,100%. Uh, so I think the take-home message here is that um, having a serious mental illness can be a risk factor for homicidal ideation, uh, but it certainly doesn't explain most uh, homicides or most murders. Uh, mo like I said, most uh, murders 
um, are not going to have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or uh, any other serious mental health diagnosis. Another thing that I wanted to touch on with this topic is whether creating a psychological diagnosis for like homicidal ideation um, could be a convenient excuse um, that somebody that commits murder could hide behind in the court system. So uh, with our criminal justice system, with our court system, we tend to just give a binary um, sort of ruling, whether you're uh, either fit to stand trial or you're mentally unfit to stand trial. Um, there's two choices and there's not really in any in between. And there's no gradation of culpability. Um, like, uh, I think a, a better system would be you might be 80% to blame for a crime due to your upbringing if you're exposed to psychosocial trauma as a child, whereas somebody like Charles Whitman, Charles Whitman was the Texas University sniper who had a brain tumor pressing against his amygdala, um, might be like 5% culpable for their actions. Um, so not just saying you're mentally fit or you're mentally unfit, but giving sort of a percentage weight as to, you know, how responsible you are for your actions, I think, uh, is more realistic. Um, but does giving a diagnosis of something like homicidal ideation relieve somebody of blame? Um, and we could parallel this to pedophilia, right? We have the diagnosis of pedophilic disorder, um, or kleptomania in the DSM-5. Um, and if you're diagnosed with that, does that mean that in some instances it's not your fault? That's a really provocative question um, that I can't give you an answer to. Um, an argument for creating a diagnosis for like homicidal ideation is uh, obviously something like homicidal ideation has a huge stigma. Um, I think a lot of people would be really, really reticent, really scared to seek treatment if they're having intrusive homicidal thoughts. Um, they'd be worried that they're going to get arrested or their family members are going to look down upon them or something like that. Um, so if we created a diagnosis, would this allow for greater access to treatment uh, and maybe help to reduce the stigma there? Whereas uh, we don't want these people with homicidal ideation to sort of be left untreated, which could be dangerous, um, and alone in their house, you know, with shame about the thoughts that they're feeling. Wouldn't it be better to create a diagnosis that maybe insurance would pay for? So great mailbag question. Um, this touches on a lot of sort of hot button issues uh, related to the DSM-5 and related to psychopathology. Um, another thing that I wanted to touch on with this homicidal ideation topic is homicide risk assessment. Uh, so in the suicide episode, we talked about suicide risk assessment, um, which has way more research behind it than homicide risk assessment. Uh, and I think a lot of that is due to the stigma of homicide risk assessment. Um, so there is going to be a parallel here between homicide risk assessment and suicide risk assessment. And I imagine people that work in correctional facilities uh, are way more familiar with homicide risk assessment because it's really important as to whether you're going to uh, place somebody in general population or in isolation or they need one-to-one -one supervision or that sort of thing. Um, like suicide risk assessment, homicide risk assessment is a high risk activity. Um, but like suicide risk assessment, with homicide risk assessment, you're going to want to assess the means. So if someone says they want to commit homicide with like one of the Star Wars stormtrooper guns, um, obviously that's not as concerning uh, because they don't have access to that means. And that's an unrealistic means um, as somebody that might say that I want to commit homicide with my kitchen knife. Um, so the second part of this is, do they have access to the means? So assess the means assess access to the means, um, whether it's easily accessible or not, um, assess internal risk factors. 
So maybe comorbid diagnoses, um, that sort of thing, and uh, assess environmental risk factors. So um, assess, you know, uh, family situation, social situation, uh, whether the person's employed or not. Um, and then also assess the important but often overlooked protective factors that might be involved. Um, so that's homicide risk assessment. And there's more standardized versions of homicide risk assessment that are out there, but again, less so than with suicide risk assessment. Uh, anyways, it's mailbag time. And again, you can send mailbag requests to ctaylo41 at cb.edu, uh, and I will try to address them in a future episode. So this mailbag says, hi, Dr. Taylor, um, I just finished your latest episode and you mentioned that you had a lot of mailbag requests, so I hope you see mine. And I did see it and I'm reading it right now. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for the past month because I missed my psych courses during the summer. Um, during the last episode on borderline personality disorder, you mentioned that many patients with borderline personality disorder experience sexual trauma and that inspired my episode request. I know it's a heavy topic, so I don't expect the episode to be made, but I'm interested in an episode on how sexual abuse experienced in childhood, all childhood, early, middle, and adolescence can psychologically impact someone, whether it be during uh, the abuse or years later. Um, I'm also reading The Body Keeps the Score right now. I like the idea you mentioned of reviewing it. Sorry this email was so long. It really wasn't that long, trust me. Reading these uh, scholarly manuscripts, this is short. This is like abstract length. Um, and thanks again for being my stand-in professor while I'm home in the summer. That gave me the feels because I'm happy to be your, your stand-in professor. Um, and I think that this topic is super, super important and could be maybe folded into my The Body Keeps the Score um, book review. And I'm sort of a slow reader with everything going on. I'm about halfway through the book. Uh, but hopefully within the next two weeks or so, I'll finish the book and I'll be able to do... Um, an episode on the body keeps the score. Um, anyways, I hear my toddler yelling in the background, I peed, so I have no idea what that, I mean, I do know what that means. I don't know what I'm walking into. Uh, so let's call it an episode. Until the next one, take care and stay well.